Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. Now, coming up on today's programme, we've all heard about the problems out at Dublin Airport, but what about hotel rooms for tourists who are coming into Ireland? Do our politicians treat the tourism sector as an industry or a support system? I'll be joined by Mark Paul from the Irish Times to hear his views on why the supply side and pricing is such a big issue for hotel rooms and who is to blame for that. Now, bullying online is a big issue for children and most particularly for adults who are largely charged with policing activity. But what are our policymakers and the platform providers doing about it? We're going to be joined by an academic expert to discuss if we're making any advances or becoming conditioned to living with online negativity. And finally, Simon Cooper, author and journalist from the Financial Times, is going to join us to discuss his new book, Chums, how a tiny cast of Oxford Tories took over the UK. And we're going to find out what Boris and his mates are all like in their 20s. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, if you're lucky enough to get through Dublin Airport this weekend as a tourist, you might find that your hotel prices are spiralling. That's if you're lucky enough to actually get a hotel room. There's a major shortage of hotel accommodation, particularly in Dublin, but also all around the country in the major tourist hotspots. I'm joined now by Mark Paul from the Irish Times to discuss. Mark, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thanks, Mandy. Now, Mark, let's talk some figures. Um, I saw the April statistics uh, from Falter Ireland and the government about the occupancy levels uh, for Ireland. And I mean, they're fairly well advanced if you think the summer season in Dublin is already at 84% and the same in Limerick in April what is it going to be like as the summer progresses um what's your take on how much capacity there is in the uh, Irish market at the moment and what are Irish tourist chiefs saying about what we actually need there's very, very little capacity in the market at the moment. But one of the problems, uh, and particularly when we look at figures and statistics and when you talk to hoteliers, is that they all think and they all seem to think that that there's a, a lot of distortion in the market at the moment, and particularly when it comes to rates um, and for various reasons. But one of those reasons is because so much uh, of the hotel room capacity has been taken out to house um, Ukrainian refugees and also to house, um, um, if, if you like, refugees from other countries in, in, in direct provision. At one stage, there was 4,000 rooms um, taken out of the market for Ukrainian refugees and something close to that for other refugees. And when you talk to hoteliers, they say that this is one of the biggest factors in the sort of um, galloping rates that we've seen. But I mean, the rates are really high. Dublin at the moment, according to the official figures, is doing the best in in, 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 in its competitor set in Europe with, with, with similar um, cities like, uh, you know, you know like, like Glasgow or like Amsterdam or Lisbon um, or other cities like that. Dublin is doing the best in Europe. Um, 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 you know, rates have recovered now in many cases to above where they were in the pandemic um, and they've recovered really really fast i mean it's it's come out of the block so quickly that it's taken an awful lot of hoteliers by surprise and now you know we've come back around to sort of you know history is repeating itself now and we've we you know we've gone back to the future in a way and um, to uh, the way people complained about hotel rooms a number of years ago to rip off republic you know you have families being charged um 200 300 quid a night for rooms and um, for uh, for family getaways um, and if you try and book a room through you know at, at the same time as a big event like a concert in crow park or 
or a, you know a big all Ireland match or something like that. Um, if you can get a room at all, you're lucky, uh, um, and and you're gonna pay um, you know three four hundred quid a night certainly in Dublin City. And uh, but even in other tourism hotspots like Killarney, for example, um, um, the biggest tourism hotspot in the country uh, from a regional basis its rooms uh, are growing at a double digit rate its room rates are growing at a double digit rate uh, and they're back above 200 euros per night down in Killarney or, or at least they were in April and now look that may not be sustained as they bring back tour buses and so on throughout the summer who would come in at lower rates but when you add all of the various pieces together what it paints a picture of is a sector that has come back really fast that is suffering from a lot of distortions and a lot of hoteliers seem determined to make up for their pandemic losses mm. in one year. Now, I'm not sure of the wisdom of that. Mm. Just two things about uh, what you've said there. First is, in 2019, Paul Kelly, who's CEO of Walter Ireland, said that we needed, back then, a thousand extra bedrooms to deal with the capacity of those levels in 2019. Presumably, if we're back at the levels there, thereabouts of 2019. Plus, we have all these social issues to deal with, like Ukrainian refugees and asylum seeker accommodation. That's still required. We still need to build more. Is that your take on it? I think I think there's a huge shortage of hotels still. Um, look, at one stage, immediately before the pandemic, um, there was, I think, uh, uh, 18,000 New hotel rooms for Dublin had planning permission, and there was only there was only twenty three thousand in the city as it stood at the time. Now, of those eighteen thousand, they weren't all going to get built, right? Because sometimes developers get planning permission just to make a site more valuable. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to build hotels. But for for the levels of growth that the, that the tourism authorities were predicting um, um, across the country, you probably needed an extra two or three thousand rooms a year at least. Um, and 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 suddenly, all of that building capacity. St- yeah, or, or all of those new rooms, they stopped during the pandemic. I mean, um, there was no construction allowed for a long time. And then developers started to reassess uh, whether they needed all of these rooms. And, you know, there had been a lot of campaigns against, you know, you know that, that people thought that there was far too many hotel rooms being built. And then suddenly tourism vanished. You know, mm-hmm. it just it just disappeared like smoke in the wind. But now a lot of these projects are being reassessed again and I think you'll find over the next number of years um, if they can get the finance if they can get it through planning um, and if they can get the construction capacity and builders to do it because you've got to remember building costs have skyrocketed um, a lot of these hotel schemes are going to come back uh, uh, on stream and, and they're going to be needed if you look at the sort of projections that are being made for tourism for the next couple of years And if those building plans do come back and the investors come back presumably they'll face the same type of opposition that they did in the past from um, political campaigns which are deliberately designed to stop that activity. Yes, I mean there was a look. There was there was a one campaign called the, the No More Hotels campaign. It was more of a, I suppose, a hashtag, but it became a rallying cry for this notion um, and this idea that um, there was too many hotels being built in Dublin and not enough cultural spaces. Now, I, I kind of see those as two separate issues. Um, uh, you know, hotel industry experts at the time were telling the people behind that campaign um, that actually. Uh, there's not too many hotels there's not enough of them we need them and we need them for employment and we need them to maintain construction but you could also see the other side of the argument that you know cultural spaces are being squeezed out I don't know if you remember the the Bernard Shaw pub when that closed I mean that was a real bastion of of sort of urban art and uh, and, and urban culture and that shut and it, it really sparked something off and you also had people um, um, who who you know quite rightly argued that there wasn't enough housing being built in Dublin but yet there seemed to be lots and lots of hotels being built but again Again, conflating, I thought, two different issues. And mm. um, 
um, a, a lot of these things conspired, I suppose, to, 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 to bring a lot of politicians on side who actually subscribed to this No More Hotels campaign. And at one stage, um, in uh, at the height of that campaign a couple of years ago, Dublin City councillors uh, actually voted to restrict or to put restrictions on the amount of hotels that could be built in Dublin. And it seems totally incongruous now um, when you can't get a room for a, for a weekend break. Um, but, uh, but yeah, No More Hotels was the rallying cry, but there really is No More Hotels now, uh, just in a different, totally different way. Mm. I think that um, that notion of um, politicians or a group of, of lobbyists kind of coming together to petition against things like, you know, in, in international investors or corporate investors, whether it's about data centres or hotel building, there's, n- there's nothing really new in that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, making the case that the cultural uh, mix of uh, the city and the country is very important as well. Do you think that some of the hotels which have been built, particularly around the capital, less so, I think, in, in the more rural areas um, that are chain um, hotels do actually kind of take a little bit away from the offering that tourists actually want when they come to Ireland, the experience that they have when they're here? I think the first thing a tourist wants or needs when they come to visit Dublin or any other city is somewhere to, to, to stay at night, right? And somewhere of a reasonable price. And I think I, I think that's that, that's the first requirement. I, t- I take your point on board. I mean, if you look at something like um, the Cobblestone Pub in Smithfield, where a, a hotel development was recently rejected by Dublin City Council, that's a, a famous music pub. And of course, tourists come for that kind of thing. They don't come necessarily to stay in soulless hotels, um, but but they do need places to stay. Um, like a, one example that, that always grated with me a little bit about this No More Hotels campaign um, was, I don't know if you remember down in Sean McDermott Street, right in Dublin's north inner city, um, on the site of an old Magland laundry, um, there was a proposal for a Japanese company called Toyoko Inn to come in and build, a, I think it was a two or three hundred bedroom hotel, right in the heart of one of the most deprived parts of the city. They were going to invest 60 or 70 million quid on it. Now, quite rightly, um, survivors of, of, of abuse by, by, by Magland sisters um, um, weren't happy about it, but there was going to be a memorial put into it. But um, ultimately, there was so much pressure put on the council at Tokyo Inn uh, uh, that, that, that there was a motion passed preventing the council from selling that site to Toyoko Inn. Um, and, and, but nothing was ever built in the years afterwards. Um, there was no more, um, there wasn't a cultural centre, there wasn't uh, a, a memorial for Magdalene, uh, for, for victims of, of the abuse of, 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 of in the Magdalene laundries. Um, all there is now is just an empty site and the weeds are growing higher and higher and higher on it. Um, and whereas there could have been a hotel in there. So sometimes I do think that campaigners and, 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 and protesters have very, very good intentions, but it doesn't always work out that way. And it's it's just, it's still undeniable that there's a massive shortage of hotels. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson. And we're talking to Mark Paul from the Irish Times. Um, Mark, you had a piece uh, last week in the Irish Times uh, and you seem to suggest in your piece, and I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth here, but that the wider political system doesn't really view tourism uh, as a serious industry because the agencies are trying their best and that somehow governments tend to lean on um, the facilities of uh, the tourism industry like the hotel supply for things that maybe the state should be taking like homeless people in hotel rooms using it absolutely rightly for Ukrainian uh, refugees and for asylum seekers but is, is that your feeling that maybe the state is leaning on the sector in, in areas that it shouldn't? And if all of the hotel rooms that should be available were available to tourists, we probably wouldn't have these difficulties. 
Yeah, I think, um, look, w- w- with something like the Ukrainian refugees coming in and taking, taking up a lot of hotel rooms, you know, it, it, you can see the difficulties in that. These are people fleeing misery and war and they need safety and they need it quickly. And they come in and, and, and look, we just have to make do and, and find places for them to go. But there are certain towns around Ireland um, now that because of the influx of refugees have no hotels at all. Tourist towns like Yall, um, where I think all but one of its hotels uh, is being used for refugees at the moment. And, and that has a knock-on effect for other local businesses like bars and restaurants and, and you know other other tourism attractions if you can't get tourists into the place at all but to address your, your, your wider point yes I do think that there is a lack of joined up thinking at policy making level with regards to the tourism and hospitality industry and there almost always has been in Ireland um, the hospitality industry and, and tourism in general it's one of our biggest indigenous exports mm. um, for, for agriculture and food but it's not treated that way I think policymakers sometimes look at the tourism industry as you know think of it as going on your holidays they don't look at it as, as a hard export that brings in hard cash into the country. Um, and, and, and that attitude, I think, sometimes filters down to some of the decision-making. I mean, I, I, you probably know, um, Mandy, that, that throughout the pandemic, I was fairly critical at times of, of some of the decision-making around um, and how quickly and how sharply and for how long that the hospitality industry and tourism was shut down at times. I said there would be economic scarring from it and once the pandemic was over and that it wasn't really giving us any huge benefit in terms of fighting the virus. I mean, look, I think some of that has borne out. Some of the problems we see now um, is due to a lack of strategic thinking uh, and a lack of respect in many ways towards the tourism and hospitality sectors. Now, look, the sector itself isn't blameless, right, when it comes to um, for example, the accusations of price gouging. Now, I do think that there are some hotels and hoteliers who are charging prices that, um, 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 you know, maybe they can see the benefit of it in the short term. But in the long term, I don't think it's going to do the sector any good. Um, I do think that the sector um, probably could treat its workers a little bit better. Mm. Um, and, 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 and sometimes when they're calling out for, for you know, more visas for workers and, and, and we can't get workers and we can't get staff, you're like, well, you know, if you improve, I worked in that sector for years myself. And, and, and I can speak from experience that if you improve working conditions in that sector, um, you will get more staff. So, but look, overall, um, um, whilst I think the tourism agencies do the best with the resources that they have, Fulch Ireland and Tourism Ireland, well, I think that there's a lot of good businesses in that. And, and sometimes politicians do think strategically about the industry. I, I think back to just over a decade ago um, when the incoming Fine Gael and, and Labour government um, used the tourism and hospitality industry to lead Ireland out of the Great Recession. That's it, right. it led yeah. Ireland out of that recession. Uh, uh, with, and it was very, it was very, it was very helpful in kind of starting a new dynamic that was about not just tourists, but also inward investment. Mark, your point about the hospitality industry coming back post COVID was very well made. And we're seeing the operational scarring in the sector now for sure. Leo Varadkar warned earlier this week about price gouging in the sector. Do you think that we need some kind of watchdog to monitor this sector? And should the government now kind of consider this as part of their problem? Not just for things like hotel rooms, but like for car rental, for food pricing. Do you think that there's a a case to be made for a sort of tourism watchdog? Well, it, I suppose it depends on, on, on how sharp those watchdogs' teeth are and, and what their true function is. If, if it's just, a, a, you know, a body observing and pointing out and, and putting information into the public domain, then yes, I mean, I mean, the more information, the better. If there's price gouging and if um, um, if there is a watchdog um, um, with the resources to do proper studies and, and, to, and to put fresh data out in front of people so that sort of proper decisions and policies can be derived from that, then I'd say yes. If you're, if well, by a watchdog you mean a, a body maybe with the, with 
the ability to intervene on pricing uh, or whatever. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I think once you start pressing those kind of buttons, you maybe get unintended consequences yeah. down the line. I, I'm, just, I'm just thinking really at the moment we're seeing people speaking through Twitter, um, you know, the, the cafe down in um, Cashel, the famous nine euro chicken roll. Like, you know, should there be some way for, for I think, the state to just to keep an eye on the pricing issue and say, look, we're actually monitoring this. I think it wouldn't be a bad idea. Uh, but for now, I'm afraid, Mark, we're, we're out of time. It's an issue that's full of complexities and there are no easy solutions, that's for sure. But for now, thank you for your insights today, Mark. That was was Mark Paul of the Irish Times. Thanks very much for that, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up after the break, online bullying, is it getting any better or are we just getting used to online negativity? This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock and we're joined now by Dr. Tiana Milosevic, who is an MSCA Research Fellow at DCU's Anti-Bullying Centre. Tiana, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us here on News Talk today. Thank you for having me. Tiana, you might start us off by telling us a little bit about the DCU Anti-Bullying Centre. Uh, what exactly do you do there? So DCU Anti-Bullying Centre is um, a I can say a leading research institution in the field of bullying um, uh, in uh, with over 20 years of experience. And we're probably most well known for our FUSE program, uh, which um, does an evidence-based support for um, anti-bullying across um, now more than 300 schools uh, in Ireland across primary and post-primary. So we're trying to empower children really in um, and teachers as well, and um, but parents as well. So all stakeholders that are relevant in the field of bullying and online safety. Um, in how to provide really better supports for children uh, in terms of uh, being um, empowering their self-efficacy um, and making them really better in supporting themselves online and, and, and offline as well. Okay. In addition to this, we also do work in the field of workplace bullying um, and really different types of um, online safety, like um, sexting. Uh, so everything that relates to really online risks as well. OK, well, this week um, there was a, a one, two, three online safety campaign, which was led by the Children's Rights Alliance. And for that reason, we wanted to talk to you today about some of your research and some of your work in, in relation to protecting children online. Um, would you just talk to me a little bit about that? Um, you've conducted some research yourself into this area. What did you find? So my most recent work really focuses um, on the effectiveness of artificial intelligence-based um, technologies uh, for addressing cyberbullying. So most recently, I've done qualitative research with children, asking them about how effective they think that some of the interventions that use artificial intelligence actually are in in, in preventing cyberbullying. Could I yeah. ask you there when sure, you sure. when you mention the use of artificial intelligence, do you mean by the social media platforms themselves, or do you mean by um, individual users and parents? control? Oh, sure. I mean, social media, mostly social media platforms, so online platforms. So what does that actually mean? So right now, for instance, when a child experiences cyberbullying, they can use various types of reporting options uh, to actually report that to the social media platform. The social media platform then looks into it and decides whether it's actually against its policy, whether it actually is cyberbullying and whether it's supposed to be taken down or not. But what platforms, social media primarily, I mean, uh, are doing now is they use artificial intelligence to do that proactively. So they're um, 
screening their platforms for cyberbullying and other types of online harms and trying to actually take them down before they're reported in order to make them more effective. So what I was doing is I was um, designing uh, certain types of interventions and asking children its feedback, which is extremely important to actually get their feedback as to how effective they think this is, and also getting their views as to how this affects their other rights, such as privacy and freedom of expression, because that's something that um, very often social media platforms, they develop these things, but not necessarily with the help of children. And it's extremely important to really implement uh, the, uh, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child in soliciting children's views, young people's views, as to the effectiveness um, uh, of, these, um, of these tools that are being developed. Um, so that's what I did. I, I did really interviews and focus groups with uh, young people um, about these tools. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a very important piece of research, which will give you insights into to the children's um, experience. But I had looked at another piece of research, uh, Tiana, mm-hmm. which said that 54 percent of, of parents felt that they, you know, uh, would help their child when they were alerted by their child about online activity or maybe, you know, bullying online. But that mm-hmm. and this was the worrying figure for me that only 19 percent of the children who they um, questioned said that they would report these to their parents. So there might be quite a lot of activity that we're not actually hearing about. And the piece I wanted to ask you about today was, why is it that still, after all of these years, um, Mm -hmm. the the Internet, which has been designed for adults, but uh, maybe a third of it is made up by children. Why is it that still the burden of responsibility lies with the parents? And and how have the social media platforms got away with you know, that that level of um, lack of intervention in relation to children's sure. activity. Yeah, so, so a lot of really, uh, we have relied on self-regulation, company self-regulation, which was sort of a norm until very recently when there was a call really for regulating um, uh, uh, online platforms, social media and others. Uh, and I hope that this will actually change in Ireland with the online safety and media regulation bill. Um, so uh, really platforms have uh, sort of, uh, what they do is they develop tools to sort of empower users, that's what they usually say. Uh, and there has been really insufficient scrutiny as to the effect of these tools. So, for instance, I was referring earlier to reporting. And when a child reports, um, uh, taking content down is extremely important, but that is really only one aspect of it. Um, when a child experiences cyberbullying, they may need other support. So, they need advice as to how to protect themselves in the future, but also sort of advice so that that cyberbullying does not affect their self esteem, their school performance. So, it's extremely important that really we involve um, all stakeholders in this space, so teachers as well and parents and social media platforms in doing this um, content takedown, but not just content takedown, but ensuring that children have different types of educational supports and counseling as well. So uh, it's extremely important that uh, all stakeholders are involved and of course, not only parents, but one uh, important aspect of this that as as you said, very few children report. So we try in our intervention really to tell children to report to an adult uh, that they trust that could be a parent or a caregiver, or at least to talk to a friend, to talk to a teacher. Um, And it is indeed really worrying that children don't. And there are various reasons as to why they don't. They may think that 
that um, the parent may make, make things worse because they don't know how to deal with it. They may not get the relational aspect of this. So we need to understand that cyberbullying is not just something that happens sort of, um, you know, a stranger attacks a child. Very often it happens in the context of peer relationships. So it's, it could be friends who were friends yesterday and then they have a problem today and it erupts online in the form of cyberbullying or online drama. So, so what happens is really that uh, children feel reluctant to do that. So we try to give them options as well to, to have really the opportunity to talk to someone anonymously as well. So I think that really what, what the hopefully the OSMR bill and really the evolving awareness of, of how to support children and the evolving environment will enable this full round support where content takedown is just one aspect and it has to be done effectively. So we can't afford to have really that uh, content lingering on the platforms, which really sends the message that actually cyberbullying is okay, which is not permissible. So one thing that I hope will pass is really the individual complaint, having the individual complaints mechanism within the OSMR, which would really ensure that content is taken down more effectively. But I emphasize this is only part of the issue. The other part of, 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 sort of the problem that is uh, still insufficiently talked about is how actually the curation of content and behavior on platforms actually may lead to the escalation of cyberbullying. Do you think that the main effect of that bill will be to police the providers um, and who, in fact, is the per- who is going to actually implement it firstly and secondly regulate it, look at the industry on an ongoing basis? So the, the OSMR uh, really establishes the the, uh, the media commission and uh, hopefully one of these commissioners will be the online safety commissioner. So they will have really the power to create online safety codes, among other things, which will really provide guidelines uh, for designated online services as to how to um, uh, which standards they need to implement in order to address online safety problems, including cyberbullying on their platform. So um, I'm hoping really that as for everything that is provided in the bill, that actually the, the media commissioner and the online safety commissioner would have the really the capacity to actually do that. So the, the, the main trust of it is really to ensure that the mechanisms that platforms already have in place, that the designated platforms have in place, will actually be effective. So what I'm hoping and what the, the bill is intended to do is really to provide the government or the, the, the media commission, actually, um, with uh, stronger powers to invest investigate uh, when there is an, a, a problem in pertaining to online safety on designated online services, so specific social media platforms, for example. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to sort of allow them really when a company or uh, a, a se- several companies are really not providing, uh, uh, for instance, reporting tools that are effective enough to be able to actually investigate and have adequate sanctions uh, in terms of ensuring that they repair uh, uh, the the aspects of the services that are really not in compliance with the online safety codes. Yeah, and that would be a big departure from where we are now, where there's no section of the internet that's sort of hived off and policed uh, in, in relation to, to children's activity. Um, if you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Tiana Milosevic about online safety. Tiana, can I just come back to you uh, because I really wanted to get a sure. few tips for parents about what they could look after, look out for if children as you say can experience very quickly and rapidly a changing relationship on the internet um, Mm -hmm. and they're afraid to reach out to their parents can you talk to me about push points that parents can look out for 
So one, I, I guess a really a top tip that I would give is very often children, one of the reasons that I've found, for instance, in my research, uh, in qualitative research with children, um, as to why they don't report is often they're afraid really that parents would not understand and that they would either sort of dismiss it as something that is trivial and that just sort of pertains to childish behavior, or on the other hand, that they would make a big deal out of it mm. and that they would take technology away, meaning primarily smartphones, uh, or that they would ban access to social media or implement some parental controls, which most of them, children, especially older teens, know how to get around uh, sort of and bypass them anyway. Um, so it's extremely important if you can within sort of your extremely uh, parents typically have so many things to worry about and busy schedules is really to try to establish that connection with uh, teen, preteen. We know now that when we have data on that, that, that younger children, every younger children are accessing social media. Uh, is really to talk to them um, uh, ab about sort of to give them the perspective that you understand that this could be a relational problem and to establish really the report where they're not going to feel threatened mm. to come to you and, and sort of when they experience such a thing. Now, this is easier said than done. Yeah, but because it's, so it's easy to make the initial, um, you know, intervention a negative one, because if, if parents are trying to keep children offline in the first place, the last thing that a child might wish to do then is to, is to report um, bullying and and activity that's nefarious in its nature. Tiana, can I just turn to um, how Ireland sits in a in a global sense in terms of um, this type of activity? Um, you led the Irish data collection for kids' digital lives in COVID nineteen times. Mm -hmm. now, obviously, mm -hmm. COVID nineteen changed all of our relationships with yeah. technology. But could you just tell me what you found and how? Irish children compare to their European counterparts? So this was actually uh, sort of worrying at the time. Uh, so this was done in, in 2020 in the summer. Uh, we did a survey with 10 to 18 year old children and one of their parents on a national sample. And we really found that uh, cyberbullying in Ireland at that time was at 28% for 10 to 18 year olds, which was higher than the numbers that we had from before. Um, and uh, actually, Ireland, along with several other countries, I think it was Germany and Italy. So this was uh, across 10 European countries. Right. So it was just in the European context uh, was actually had among the highest uh, prevalence rates uh, uh, of um, cyberbullying victimization really? at that time. Yes. Uh, but that was again, I'm saying this is uh, after that you have the NACOS report, another one which mm -hmm. came out the, the following year. So in 2021 and their cyberbullying victimization rates would, were much lower, I have to say. So at 11 percent for nine to 17 year old children. And that was a nationally representative sample. So really robust research. So I have to say that that was probably a, a surge that we found uh, really in, in lockdown conditions because this was that that first wave and it was a very specific situation. And another thing that, that we found worrying uh, was really that children reported that they were uh, in Ireland. Children were among the sort of the, the most worried um, that their school performance would be effect, affected negatively by the switch to uh, the online um, in, in, in school. So just to sum up um, and to finish up on this, Tiana, um, where would you say we're at now? You're optimistic that things will get better and that tech companies will be charged with more responsibility for um, curating the content that children have access to? I actually, I actually am. I, I, uh, I am optimistic. So it's uh, you. You can find various sort of sources which um, sort of critique the really rightfully so the OSMR. And, and again, as I said, I hope that the individual complaints mechanism will be there. But I'm really happy that we're at this level of conversation because 
just seven or eight years ago when I was uh, doing research uh, in uh, in this space with interviewing companies and uh, legislators, policymakers, n- no one thought that there was an alternative to self-regulation. Mm. So I think even though it moves slowly, uh, that now we have this understanding that regulation is necessary. Uh, I, I And even though it took a long time, I still think that we are at a good place. Well, we, on that positive note, uh, we will end this discussion because for too long, I think governments have been certainly playing catch up with the big tech companies when it comes to sure. regulation on all fronts. But for now, uh, that was Dr. Tiana Milosevic, who is an MSCA Research Fellow at DCU's Anti-Bullying Centre. Tiana, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, the Tory Toffs are running the UK. But how did it all start? Find out after the break. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Have a listen to this. And so with, with safer streets, uh, with great local schools, uh, with fantastic uh, broadband, uh, uh, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. And that, of course, was British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And I'm joined now by journalist Simon Cooper from the Financial Times. Simon is also an author and he's joining us now from the Hate Book Festival. We're going to hear about his latest book, Chums, how a tiny cast of Oxford Tories took over the UK. Simon, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us on News Talk today. Hi, Mandy. Now, Simon, the title is really the thesis of this book, but um, I've, I've been reading it for a few days now. It's not a, a diatribe about Brexit or anything like it. To me, it's a sort of investigation of how we've arrived at a point in time where a small group of elites who are well educated, and, and we'll come to, to that in a moment, uh, from Oxford University are now running the UK. But can you start us off today by telling us what was your motivation for writing this book? It started for me the night of Brexit. I mean, as you say, the book is not an attempt to relitigate Brexit. But that night, as I sat up till dawn watching TV, and I watched the leading Leavers and also Remainers traipse across the TV, Boris Johnson, David Cameron, Michael Gove, Jacob Rees-Mogg, George Osborne. And I thought, hang on, I know exactly where these people come from. They were all at Oxford with me or just before me. I sort of know how they were formed. I know what has brought this cast of people to this point. And so I wanted to trace Brexit back to the origins and to understand what's going on. And also, I think, to understand the current British ruling caste. You have to go back to Oxford in the 1980s. And you use a quote in the book uh, attributed to Napoleon who says, if you want to understand a man, you have to understand a man in his 20s. And you were a contemporary of this group of of politicians. Can you talk to me a little bit about what your experience at Oxford was like? Yeah, so I arrived in 1988, the same day as Jacob Rees-Mogg. David Cameron and Michael Gove had left that summer. Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, who was also there as a graduate student, had left in 1987. Uh, later, Dan Hanan arrives when I'm there. He's the, he becomes the theorist of Brexit, the Karl Marx of Brexit, uh, Dominic Cummings as well. I wasn't hugely aware of these people at university, except for Jacob Rees-Mogg, who was sort of unmistakable because he dressed in a double-breasted suit. He was the only student who went around in a double-breasted suit and umbrella. So everyone knew who he was. But, you know, this was a small group of kind of public schoolboys 
who hung around the Oxford Union, most of them, the debating society, and were sort of mocked um, by more ordinary, more middle-class students, which was the bulk of the university. So in Charwell, the university newspaper, people like me would kind of make fun of them, and we thought they were the past. And meanwhile, what we didn't realize is that they were heading straight for power. They'd identified this route from the Oxford Union Debating Society to Westminster, and they were, at age 18, 20, they already knew where they were going. Yeah, and their ascension to, to high power is is no surprise to them because that's exactly what they were aiming for and that's what they've achieved. You mentioned the Oxford Union there. You might explain to us exactly um, what that is and how that operates because I think it's it's very different from um, the students' union that many of us would perceive here in, in Ireland and maybe even in the UK. Yeah, I think a student union is typically a place that's a kind of trade union for students dealing with issues like housing and discrimination. And Oxford University has one of those. But the Oxford Union is very different. The Oxford Union is a debating society built around this vast debating chamber in a courtyard in the middle of town. And it has a history of producing prime ministers. Um, So William Gladstone, Harold Macmillan, Ted Heath, and Boris Johnson went through it. Many of them were presidents. Boris Johnson and Michael Gove both were. And it sort of is a children's parliament. It's a kind of children's house of commons, and it's very much modelled on the commons, and you call it, the speakers call each other honourable member, honourable gentleman, that kind of thing. And so they learn these debating tricks that you see with Johnson. For example, you ignore the other person's arguments and you just do an ad hominem attack to distract from what the other person has said about you. You lower your voice to make it sound like you're going to say something very profound. This kind of thing they'd already, some of them learned at Eton, and they perfect this style at Oxford. So when you see Boris Johnson, you think, well, this is kind of an, some people think this is an authentic persona, this is who he is. No, this is very carefully learned over the years, and the Oxford Union is the culmination of that. So then you also meet a lot of other people who plan to go to the Commons as well, and so you start building your networks there. So it's a kind of unparalleled training for the Commons. What other things about Oxford University in particular um, make it such a, a, I suppose, a breeding ground for, for British Prime Ministers? How many have come from Oxford and why not from Cambridge or Eton? Yeah, it's very bizarre. I mean, Eton also produces Prime Ministers, but Oxford, five, sorry, 11 of the 15 post-war Prime Ministers went to Oxford. One, Gordon Brown, went to Edinburgh because the Scottish elite has a slightly different route. And then three didn't go to university at all, including Churchill. So Oxford is really, you can tell the story of British politics in modern history without reference to any other university, not even Cambridge. And I think it's partly because of the, largely because of the unmatched kind of status of the, of the Oxford Union. So if you're a 17-year-old ambitious politico, that's where you're heading. And then there's also this mystique of Oxford that the population as a whole has been told, well, they're very clever. They know how to rule. These people are born to rule. And if they also have a patrician accent like David Cameron or Boris Johnson and they're a man, you know, public school man who's been to Oxford is kind of the British platonical ideal of a prime minister. And so there is a kind of deference on the part of the mass of the population. And one reason I wrote the book was to destroy a bit of the Oxford mm. mystique, to let people peek in and see that it's not such a brilliant place. Yeah, that's one thing I wanted to ask you about. Because in the book, I'm picking up that 
notion of them being very well educated or maybe it's just educated in a different way. This idea that their education is kind of grounded in rhetoric and they're moulded as great orators. Um, is that something that you feel has made them particularly successful in this moment in time where the the era of celebrity appeals to the electorate a, a great deal? I think what's very important maybe in this era of constant media more is to be able to speak well and to some degree write well. And the generally the British upper class education in Oxford in particular focuses on speaking and presenting mm. and writing. So most of the education in the art subjects and all these people did art subjects is you write one essay a week, typically maybe two, and then you present it in a tutorial, one-on-one, -on -one, or two students for one tutor. You read out your essay, your tutor points out the enormous holes in your knowledge. You probably wrote it overnight and finished at 5 a.m. You might have consulted a bit of one book. Tutor points out the holes in your knowledge, and you then verbally dance your way around those holes for an hour. And so it's very much an education in performing verbally and in speaking, rather than in absorbing a lot of substance and learning very serious analysis. I mean, there are people who come out, who work very hard at Oxford and come out as quite serious scholars. Absolutely, that happens. But you definitely didn't have to at all in the 80s. And someone like Boris Johnson or Jacob Rees-Mogg, they didn't. They didn't do uh, very much work at all. So Oxford men in particular tend to seem more than they are. Mm, mm. They present themselves as these polymaths, but it's a very light veneer often. Yeah, we certainly often um, tune in to the debates in the House of Commons and realise there's much more theatre involved in British politics than there is in, in the Irish doll here or our parliament. Um, if you're just tuning in, we're listening to Simon Cooper talk about his new book called Chums. This is News Talk and Taking Stock. Simon, I just wanted to come back a little bit to examine the key figures who were at Oxford with Johnson at that time and who has helped him in his ascendancy and who remains part of his cabinet of that era when he was in his 20s and at the height of his presence in Oxford. Well, I mean, firstly, there's the rival, David Cameron. Uh, Cameron is two years younger. They know each other from Eton. And at Oxford, they mix in the small upper class circle around the Bullingdon Club, which is an all male club that goes around, uh, you know, having raucous dinners in restaurants and smashing up the rooms of new members. The Bullingdon Club specializes in this kind of rule breaking because it's really saying we upper class men, uh, we can break the rules. The rules are not for the likes of us. And you see that with Partygate as well, that attitude. Uh, of course, the rules don't apply to Boris Johnson. He makes rules. Mm. So he knew Cameron, he always looked down on Cameron rather, because Johnson had won glittering prizes, he'd been captain of school at Eastern, he um, president of the Oxford Union, Cameron wasn't really interested in all that. And so when Cameron then after university, partly thanks to his very upper class networks, ascends and becomes prime minister, Johnson feels he's illegitimate. You know, he's known this kid since he was 13 and he's, he's, he's a junior. And so the Brexit referendum is a way for Johnson to kind of right that wrong as he sees it, mm. to, to take his rightful place as prime minister. Michael Gove arrives at Oxford as a fresher, goes to the Oxford Union. He's a very skilled debater, more so than Johnson. And, but of course, Johnson's the most charismatic person there and he's an Etonian. So he is seen as the natural leader. So Gove is very awestruck and becomes what he calls a votary of the Boris cult, gravitates around him, helps Johnson get elected union president. 
And uh, someone like Guto Harry, also an Oxford Union figure of the time, is now Johnson's communications secretary. So these networks are very close. And then uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg tries to become Oxford Union president, is just too weird to be elected, loses the presidency to Damien Hines, who's now in the British cabinet with him. But Rees-Mogg in some ways is a Johnson mini-me, exactly the same Eton, Oxford Union trajectory, but is just, uh, just, just lacks the charisma of Johnson to, to seal the deal. It's a very small circle that has endured and gotten to to high office and their performance since they got there is hardly one that um, Oxford would look at and say it can be comparable to maybe previous prime ministers. What do you think it is about this uh, cohort of graduates that makes them say, let's be kind and say less successful as um, senior politicians than maybe their predecessors? Well, I think it's partly this this entitlement, uh, this sense of politics is a game and the rules don't apply to us. If things go badly wrong, like if Brexit doesn't turn out well, well, our caste will always be fine because the British upper caste always is fine. And the other thing that makes them less effective is that their, their signature project, Brexit, yeah. uh, it doesn't really make sense. You know, you've cut off your links with the largest trading bloc in the world, which is on your doorstep. And, uh, you know, it turns out that China and the U.S. don't actually want to sign trade deals with you. So they've followed this policy that doesn't work. And so a lot of what they do, um, you know, a lot of the initiatives they announce, like imperial pounds and, and weights, is designed really to disguise this. Mm. And why did they want this? I think it's because they were upper class British men are raised with the idea. Upper class British men have always ruled the world. They ruled this great superpower. They ruled the empire. They won two world wars you know they helped invent the computer and television and they wrote 1984 and they um, invented keynesianism so they're made for great things and then they find themselves in this you know offshore member of the european union and you go to brussels uh, ministerial meetings and the irish minister is banging on about plastic bag use and it's just not glorious it's mm. just not what we what this country is for and what upper class men are for and so brexit i think was a um an attempt by men of that caste to sort of go back in time to a more glorious time. And in the book, Thatcher was quite a, an important figure for them as well uh, in terms of their the way that they it would shape their opinion uh, on Europe. Can I just ask you um, another angle on the Oxford experience, uh, which is they learn to uh, be involved in elections from an early stage. Do you think that's an important part of Johnson's appeal now to the Tory parties where... His behaviour is causing them a lot of trouble, but ultimately he's very good at getting elected. Has he has he ever lost an election? Do you think that that, that grounding of elections in Oxford is part of his key appeal? Yeah, I mean, one of the things about the Oxford Union, maybe the most important thing, is they organise elections every term they elect a new president. So three times a year, whereas, you know, in grown-up British politics, you might have a general election once every five years. But three times a year, the Oxford Union, they're going around canvassing votes. They're building what they call slates, alliances, like let's vote for me for president and you for treasurer and him for secretary. And then we go around persuading people to vote for our slate. And so they're very, very good at putting together these kind of inside um, electioneering games. And in the Conservative Party, where the, the Conservatives regularly displace their leader through um, leadership elections, which are triggered by MPs, and of course there might be one against Johnson this summer, this is just brilliant training. 
you know you, you very become very good at assessing well she's a real supporter and she's a uh, soft supporter of our slate and he's just pretending to support us this kind of very complex electioneering calculations they learned at 18. Yeah, I think very often people underestimate the memory muscle that's required for electioneering. Um, now, you interviewed an awful lot of people for this book. I just wanted to find out if, if your opinions had changed in any fundamental way since you started writing it. I was amazed. I mean, I was at 18. I had no idea. I didn't know how the world works. didn't know how power works. I didn't understand class well. I was amazed researching the book to see that they they were not confused they already knew where they were going and when i looked at the photos in you know university publications university newspapers of reese mogg at 18 or johnson gove at 18 they looked like they do now they even had the same hairstyles yeah. they're already dressed like middle-aged men at 18 middle-aged upper-class men they they sort of haven't changed no. and you know i came across descriptions of johnson as oxford union president in 1985 or 86 that are pretty much Johnson now, kind of shambolic, unbrushed hair, funny, uh, not really interested in organising anything, that they arrived at university fully formed. Fully formed. Uh, before I let you go, can I just ask you your views on what this is doing to the Tory party now? And very briefly, what's your prediction for Johnson in the weeks and months ahead? What it's doing is that, I mean, he has permanently, I think, tarnished his brand because this unseriousness that I write about in the book is now obvious to the whole population. He's not a serious man. He's not a reliable man. He's not uh, somebody who feels we're all in it together. And it's going to be very hard, whatever happens in the next years, for him to change that perception because it's a perception of who he is in his deepest core. And so I think he's permanently wounded. I suspect he will get through this summer because the Tories don't have an obvious alternative. And I suspect he will stand in the next general election because Johnson is all about power, winning power, getting re-elected. He has no plans for anything he wants to do with that power. And so he will fight his way to the next general election. And he may even win that. But I, I think he probably won't win in 2024. OK, well, that's uh, the latest book, Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories Took Over the UK. I can't recommend it highly enough for political enthusiasts and anyone who's interested in current affairs. Similar to Simon's previous book, Barca, uh, which was about the Barcelona Football Club. You probably think you know all there is to know about Boris Johnson, but you can certainly learn a lot more from this. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's author and journalist Simon Cooper. Simon, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. I hope you found today's guests interesting. And if you do have any suggestions, please do email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the Newstalk app. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and they'll be reviewing all of your Sunday newspapers. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thank you for tuning in and enjoy the bank holiday.